Cost of Not Paying Attention, hosted by nationally recognized speaker Janine Hamner Holman. Janine knows what it takes to attract and retain world class talent. Join her here each week on The Cost of Not Paying Attention as we use brain science, leadership, management, and real life challenges managers face to explore the places where we aren't paying attention. Welcome to The Cost of Not Paying Attention. I'm your host, Janine Hamner-Holman. What am I paying attention to today? Y'all, I had an opportunity yesterday to get together with a group of CEOs, and we were talking about how this little computer that lives in our head makes up stories, because that's how it sorts information and keeps things in line. But then the tricky part is when we make up a story and then we live into that story as though it is real. So one of the CEOs I was talking to said that several years ago, he had been at a networking event and he met this woman CEO and he was sure that she hated him. And every time he would run into her at something, he would avoid her because he was sure that she hated him. And then about a year ago, she said, as a meeting was breaking up, hey, Frank, don't leave because I want to I want to talk to you at the end of this meeting. And he thought, oh, shit, I, like I, I'm in trouble. There's a there's a problem. This is going to be awful. And she stopped him and said, so I have a client who I think you would be a perfect match for. And I want to put you guys together. And, you know, the first meeting, maybe the three of us can do so I can smooth the road for you. And that organization became actually his biggest revenue client currently. And so he was talking about like he had created this whole scenario where this woman hated him. And then she introduced him to his biggest client. She, clearly, she did not hate him. And for two years, he lived as though that was true. And so I love this idea of how much this machine makes up, makes meaning in the world and, and how tricky it can be to then get out of our way because we've made up all these stories. So with that, I am going to bring in our guest for today, who you're seeing here. Elise Stevens is a new best friend of mine. She is a career tactician. And what she does is she helps people thrive in the workplace. She's an amazing coach and strategist. And she is the person that you want to talk to about your career when you're tired of getting those same old results. And when she and I were talking last, we got into talking about this idea of how you read a room. And so I am super excited to get to have this conversation with you today. Welcome to the show, Elise. Janine, hello. How are you? 
I am very well, thank you. And as you may have noticed, Elise has a, a bit of a lilting accent. She is joining us from Brisbane, Australia, where it is now, what, eight o'clock Saturday morning? It is, but it's a lovely day here in Brisbane. <laughs> so thank you so much for joining us. Ah, thank you for the opportunity. Oh, you're welcome. So as I often start, Elise, tell me, what is something that you have become aware of? that we're not paying enough attention to? And what is the cost to us of that inattention? Well, I love the topic of your title of your podcast, the cost of not paying attention, because mm. often people ignore what's going on regarding politics yeah. in organisations and being able to read the room. And I use the room as a much more generic thing than just, you know, you're in a meeting and you're seeing things. So the cost of not paying attention to politics and what's going on is that it may negatively impact you. Right. Right. And, you know, no one wants that. No one wants to be blindsided by something happening, you know, either being moved out of a role you like or, you know, exiting the organisation at its most extreme, you know, increased stress, you know, decreased mental health, you know, all these things. And let's face it, people's behaviour at work is often driven by ego mm -hmm. and the pursuit of power. Right. Um, I wish it wasn't so, but it is so true. Right. Let's define what we're talking about first. And I found this article, what this is obviously, what this is talking about is how when we notice cues that are happening in our workplace, it, it enables us to better sort of navigate. So when you're thinking about how to read a room, is that essentially what we're talking about? Yeah, like we're talking about how to engage people how to get people, you know, how to be a better influencer, but also yeah. how to navigate the tricky world of organizational politics. And so when we think about organizational politics, what are the things that we want to be paying attention to so that we are a better negotiator, so that we are more effective, so that we are getting the buy-in from the people that we need to get the buy-in from? Well, with anything, you've got to understand who's who in the zoo, yeah. who the gatekeepers are, <laughs> who's got the power. And so if you're trying to bring in a piece of change, which mm -hmm. is what I do as an organisational change manager, right. you've really got to understand who, who are the people that are going to derail this? Who are the people that are going to be sending you the stroppy email and saying, I'm not happy, this has got to stop? And then right. like, <laughs> and so, and so what are the ways that we can, because this can be a tricky skill for people. So what are the ways that we can improve our attunement to that? I mean, sometimes it's just, you know, who's the CEO or who's the highest ranking in the room, but sometimes there's other kinds of influencers and politics that can be going on. So how can we get better at being attuned to that? So if you're new to an organisation, I think the first thing you need to do is pull out the org chart yeah, and, and look and see. But you also need to l l listen. Yeah. 
listen to what people are saying, listen to people that have worked there for a while about, you know, you've got to watch out for X, Y, Z, they're mm -hmm. not happy. And just keep an open mind because, you know, when um, when you listen to other people, you're also bringing their baggage along with you. Right. So, but you've got to form your own opinion, but you've got to be agile in that approach so that yeah. you can adapt because people aren't just, you know, linear. Yeah. You know, things go up and down all the time. Right. But I also think that you need to actually look at some of the internal social media channels like Ooh. Yammer and Facebook for Business and see, uh -huh. see who's active and what uh -huh. they're saying. You know, there are some groups within organisations that might be small but have a lot of power. Right. It's not necessarily the large groups. And so you've got to map out kind of who's got the ear of the CEO, you know, who's their pet, where has the CEO come from? Have they mm -hmm. come from internal? What was their old group? You've really got to do a lot of market research if that yeah. makes sense. Right. No, I think it I think it makes a lot of sense. And I want to go back for just a second to to what you said right at the beginning of that. So what I love about this, you know, often when we think about influencing we're really thinking about what what can yeah. I say? What can I do? How can I mold the conversation? But this article here from the Harvard Business Review is, is really talking about the way that we pay attention when we are not speaking and the way that we want to uh, influence other people and the, and the nonverbal cues that we want to be watching out for. What are your thoughts about that? Well, NLP. Yeah. Right? So if I if I talk to someone and I'm not using the same terms as them, they're immediately going to go, what? But if I reframe the conversation, if I listen in the first place and work out what, listen to what they're saying and the words they use, and then I come back and use those same words, mm. then they're going to be a lot more oh, she, she understands what I'm about and yeah. she's listening to what I'm saying. And so I'll give you an example. So a particular person has a thing against the word test. Okay. Right. So if I was to go and say to them, I need someone to help with testing doing this, mm -hmm. what, what's their immediate response going to be? They're going to shut down because you're using yeah. my, using, using this word that I don't like. I don't like yeah. it. I don't like tests. Yeah, so instead I go back and I use the word review, mm. verify. All of this. Yeah, right? But they are a lot happier because, oh, she's only asking me to review something. She's not asking me to test something, mm -hmm. even though it's the same thing. Right, right. And, uh, and I love what you were pointing to a minute ago when you were talking about when we use the same language as somebody else, you know, it's, it's, it's how when we are in affinity with somebody, we often end up mirroring their body language. People say to me all the time, people who know my mother really well, they say, oh my gosh, you look so much like your mom. I look nothing like my mother. I look like, I look a lot like my dad. I look nothing like my mother. What they are noticing is our facial uh, expressions and our hand mannerisms. And 
my mother and I are very close. And so, you know, I do a lot of things that are like my mother. And so people make that connection. And when we can do that mirroring, it, it creates that, that feeling of connectivity and affinity that, you know, we all know people do business with people that they like. And so when we can create that connection with them, we can move things further along. Yeah. And you've got to, you've also got to listen to clues either, you know, via email or, you know, in meetings about how engaged they are with you, because, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of organizations, especially here in Australia, they're not so much on the direct. (laughs) And like, you know, um, I, you know, I interviewed a Dutch girl once and she said that, you know, Australians, you're so different to the Dutch, you know, because she is saying that the Dutch just come out and say it, whereas the Australians, they kind of beat around the bush. Right. And and often it's not a direct strike, if that makes sense. Uh Uh-huh. More likely to escalate and have it come down that way than to Mm -hmm. actually just speak to you and say there's a problem. Well, it's an organisational thing too. I'll just preface that. Right. But being able to pick up the clues when people are cranky and might be starting to escalate mm-hmm. is so important. And sometimes you can't work it out. Right. It just comes out of the blue and you're like, oh, what have I done? You know? <laughs> so as I was uh, doing research and prepping for this conversation, I came across this really interesting article. What this is from, this is from a website that's all about helping parents whose kids have ADHD and or are on the spectrum. And part of what they were talking about is, of course, that a child with ADHD ADHD, and a child who's on the spectrum has a hard time cueing into body language and tone of voice and facial expressions and social cues. Uh, I had never really thought about this concept of reading a room from that perspective. And, you know, in today's world, of course, so so many of us are, we are realizing, are either on the spectrum or my uh, stepson has ADHD. You know, it's, it's, these things are more and more common. And so it got me thinking, and, and you may not have a, an answer to this, but I just thought we could explore it a little bit. What do I do if I know I am not somebody who is naturally good at um, at being able to read a room? Like, can we, if I have a close friend at work, can I enroll them in trying to help me figure things out? Or like, what what ideas do you have about, you know, if if sort of I suck at this, what A, how can I get better? And B, what might be some workaround strategies to try to read the room if if I'm not good at picking that stuff up? Oh, great question, Janine. Well, often um, after a meeting, you'll debrief with the other people, especially if it's been uh, quite tumultuous. I think I pronounced it right. Right, right, yes. The meeting after the meeting. Yeah, yeah. And often, especially after they've been quite... um, horrible let's let's call it (laughs) being quite emotional and you know there's been a bit of argy bargy and you know all that kind of stuff um 
then you'll debrief with yep. the other with your with your posse with your friends and um and and i think that if you have trouble reading the room that's a great way to do it and just you know just with one person go you know i you know i thought this what do you think or i was having trouble working out what was going on in there were people happy not happy mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff and i think that that's that's a great way to do it and that's why it's really important to have good interpersonal relationships with people that you trust yeah i also think i was saying before that you know sometimes people aren't direct but i do find that people give you um verbal and visual clues about mm -hmm. how what they're thinking and so often words and actions don't match and that's a a red flag so right. um and so that is you know people um so i'll give you an example i used to work with someone that was a dreadful project manager and uh she used to say i'm very self-aware I, I love it when people say that because usually the people who say that are the least self-aware people. It's so interesting. Yeah, right. So you're immediately thinking you're not self-aware at all. <laughs> right. and, and I think that, you know, I think that the more outrageous the claim, yeah. the more you should just take the opposite. And I was in a meeting, some people were disagreeing with each other and I don't know, for whatever reason, they were saying, sorry, Janine. <laughs> and then you would go, sorry, Elise. Right. Right. And so myself and the other people were chatting because it's all Zoom calls. It's yeah. Very, not in, um, not in person at all. And so what we were saying was sorry equals not sorry at all. Correct. And I think that, I think that that's important to read the room. <laughs> Yeah. You know, they both wanted their way. No one was going to back down. And, um, you know, it was like, and then they said, well, we'll have to take this offline. Yeah. And it's like, good. Sick of hearing yeah. And, you know, so you and I both get to work with organizations and, and help them through some of these snarly issues. Yeah. And so when you're in a situation, if you're like facilitating a conversation or, or you're the consultant who's been brought in to help with this and and people are being sorry, not sorry, and people are being snarky and, you know, starting to cross that line. What do you when you're sort of reading the room and figuring out, all right, so is it better to just stay here and hash it out or is it better to actually say, I don't. I don't really think we're going to make much progress on this right now. Let's take a break and then let's come back to this when we next get together next Tuesday or, you know, whenever, whenever that opportunity is. How do you try to help organizations and, and people navigate through that? Look, I think you have to call time on it. Just go, yeah. that's enough. Yep. Uh, not, you don't say it like that. <laughs> Shot. You have been naughty. You go to the corner. Time out. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. But the thing is that you get sick of hearing the sorry, not sorry for the 10th time and it's just like, ah, oh, look, you know, I've got other things to do rather than listen to this shit. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah, most definitely. So I found this really interesting article in Business Insider. It was talking a little bit about how we are often a mover or an opposer, a follower or a bystander, and how we act out of power or meaning or affect. And we can be closed or open or, or random. And I, I found those concepts really interesting about sort of the, the, like the power dynamics that might be happening mm -hmm. inside of a conversation that might not necessarily have anything to do with the actual power that people have, but sort of the roles that we play and mm -hmm. I was thinking about, you know, as we are trying to trying to read the room and trying to gauge what's happening and, and how to move forward, how to how to get the buy in that we need to get the outcome that we need to get the result that we need to make the thing that we're trying to have happen, happen in the organization. I think that you have to quickly work out kind of the style of the person. Mm. And I mean that, you know, command and control. Yep. Are they truly, you know, a facilitator? You know, there's different ways to categorise them. Yep. You know, how much of a narcissist are they? You know, what's their buttons? Yeah. That you don't ever want to push. Right. You know, what? what's the words you can and can't use with them? Yeah. And, you know, it's a bit trial by fire. <laughs> right, because if we get it wrong... Yeah, yeah, yeah. They in a black ban you, baby. Right. <laughs> Trust you. I always have problems with command and control. Mm -hmm. I think and most of us do. I mean, it's it's yeah. one of the things that's great about getting to do what you and I get to do at this moment in time, because many organizations are realizing that this old command and control structure, it actually doesn't work great for modern humans. And so we get to help them figure out how to move into something different. I'm not seeing any movement. Really? Really? really. Oh, man. I don't know whether it's just the organizations I work with, uh -huh. but I, I there's this disconnect between, you know, the lofty HR ideals of, right. you know, Kumbaya and, um, you know, we must be all be better leaders. And then I find that from an operational perspective, we'll let people do whatever they need to do. And even though there might be some people damage, yeah, we, we're not going to address it until it suits us. And you never, like, you kind of already know how bad I always find that people's bad behavior is tolerated um, until it isn't. Yeah. And, and so when you are working with organizations, what do you find is often that tipping point that gets organizations or organizational leaders to say, okay, this that we used to say, you know, we didn't publicly say it was okay, but we tacitly said it was okay by not doing anything about it. What tends to be that tipping point? 
I think once things are escalated to a really senior manager, mm -hmm. like if it's just confined to like one team or one team, one division, yep. one department, yep. then yeah, they're delivering, you know. Right. I don't have to do anything. Yep. But once it goes kind of out, out and up and mm -hmm. comes back down, then they've got to do something. So it's not until someone else rocks the boat yeah. that they'll do something. It's been my, my observation. So I'm really curious. I mean, obviously, I am in the US, you're in Australia. So from your perspective, what mm -hmm. do you see as, you know, there's some organizations here, uh, one that, that I've just started working with, and they have been having really significant turnover year over mm -hmm. year, like 40%, 50% of their staff, right? I mean, huge numbers. Um, and it was when the CEO finally realized, I mean, he knew people were quitting, but it, it was when he realized really what the cost was of that transition in hard dollars that and and intellectual capital walking out the door that he mm -hmm. suddenly was like oh okay yeah i guess i guess we better do something about this so mm -hmm. what are the other triggers that you see as sort of motivating people to realize all right we do need to do something about this you know that's it's a, a hard question it is a hard question because I've seen so much inactivity with this. I've seen some exit interviews from people leaving the organization and, mm -hmm. and putting and writing down what really what really on. went on. Yeah. That HR have kind of done something, but not. Yeah. But. Um, I, I just don't see it. I, I, I think that you know bad behaviour, unfortunately, is tolerated until it's not um, under the guise of people deliver. Yep. Um, I think it's a shame, but you know, at the end of the day, I think that we, that people just think that oh well, we're expendable. Mm. The the cost on individuals doesn't. For some people, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Not everyone, but some. Yeah. No, certainly, yes. And I wonder if the group of people that are realizing that the cost to individuals and that the cost to an organization for losing high performers, I, I wonder if that if that group of people who get it is growing it feels mm -hmm. to it feels to me like it is um you know when i when i talk with folks at different levels in organizations it feels to me like there's more of a of a general understanding of that than there has been in the past i hope so <laughs> i hope so too yeah and you know of course that's a that's a big part of what you and i are both up to in the world is yeah. uh, working on you know creating that understanding that organizations do well when their people do well 
Yeah, but I think that people also have to take more ownership of their own happiness at work. Yeah. Happiness. <laughs> happiness is one of these ideas that that my personal opinion about happiness is that we've gotten this idea wrong that you know in in the united states bill of rights you know uh the pursuit of happiness is part of what we're supposedly up to as a group and happiness is um it's circumstantial um you know right now as we are having this conversation I am actually heartbroken. Uh, we had to say goodbye to our beloved dog earlier this week. Oh, no. I know. I mean, it's just, it's one of the things that is just awful about, um, about having these furry creatures in our lives. And if I talk about it for too long, I will well up. So I'm not going to do that. Um, you know, so I am not happy. I'm not happy at all. I am, however, motivated. I am, however, curious. I am, however, ultimately satisfied with my life. Mm -hmm. And so I think we've collapsed some things mm -hmm. when we think inside of an organization that an organization is responsible for my happiness. I think an organization is responsible for my satisfaction, which is a very different thing because it's, it's less based on in the moment circumstances, as I think about it. Mm -hmm. What do you have to say to all that? <laughs> Look, well, I'm sorry to hear about your dog. Thank you. That, you know, I've um, lost pets before and it takes a lot to transition through that grief. Yeah. You know, I don't think that there's a final state of happiness. I think that, you know, there's a number of factors you know, being at peace. I'm trying to actually more talk about how, you know, there are some things that we can change at work to make us a lot more, if I don't use the word happy, I don't know what I'll use. But... <laughs> content, powerful. Yeah, content. Yeah. And, and it's not about, you know, promotions and things like right. that. It's about doing meaningful work. Absolutely. It's about having a being respected and giving respect to others around us you know it's about having that sense of fulfillment and contribute contributing to something that you enjoy right. it's an intellectual thing for some people yep. you know there's so many different factors but i think that you know i see so many people that are grumpy right. at work and it's like and they do push all that responsibility back onto the organization and yeah. it's like uh, no actually that is you right to resolve and to get in the moment because if work's not working for you no <laughs> uh, no we i get what you mean if work's not working for you yeah yeah if it's not doing for doing it for you then you need to do something about it because you know there are very few of us that are financially stable enough to just say right oh, <laughs> out yeah but i do think that if something's not working for you then you need to do something about it and you know the one the one that was um said that you know she's self-aware she was really toxic and yet they chose to do nothing about it eventually they did right because 
a higher up person complained and she couldn't understand it. Right. Like, no, I once, I, I once had a boss scream at me, you know, nothing about people. I was no. like, dude, if I know one thing, what I know about is people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, he, in fact, massively self-aware, self, not self-aware and incredibly toxic. And eventually something was done about him, but, and I made a conscious choice. I am not, I am not invested enough in this organization to try and do anything about that. What I'm going to do is find a new job, which I did. And I left. And so if you find yourself in that kind of situation out there, Elise is one of the people that I know who's an amazing coach and who can help people um, not only think about how to be happier in their career, but also sometimes think about making a change. That's the big thing, isn't it? Right. The thing is that when you're unhappy at work, what are you going to do? You're going to go home and take it out on your family. Right. Right. You're going to have a shit life. Your health's going to um, be impacted. You know, your stress levels are going to go up. You're not going to enjoy life. All because some person at work's making your life difficult. Right. And so it's like, well, I'm thinking that, you know, you've got a choice to yep. be unhappy, happier, content. It's your choice. Or you have to do something. Or make a different choice and get the heck out. Yeah. That's right. Right. Uh, well, Elise, this has been wonderful. And I am really trying to get our shows uh, closer to 30 minutes and leave, leave the uh, hour-long shows behind. So if there was something that you wanted to talk about today or to share with our listeners that you haven't had an opportunity to do yet, is there anything? I just want to go back and say, listen more. Yeah. Because people often tell you what they're thinking. And if it, the more random it seems, the more you've got to listen, if that makes sense. So it if someone says sense. something yep. to you out of context and you can't make sense of it, right. store it up because it's going to make sense and they're giving you a heads up about what they're planning to do and how it might impact you. I know that sounds cryptic, but I've had some people say some really odd things to me. And then months later, it's it's like the jigsaw formed and all the dots and the lines came together. Uh, so that's what you were telling me. <laughs> and then I thought some really bad words after that. Yeah. Yeah, I have a mentor, uh, Alison Armstrong, who who often says, people will tell you who they are. You need to believe them. Mm. And I mean, we often we want people to be different. And so we create this different story about who they are. And then we live into that story as though it's real. And when information comes in that it doesn't fit mm. that story, we let that information go. And her point is, no, like pe people will tell you who they are. And what what we get to do is we get to listen and mm -hmm. pay attention 
and and notice what they're really saying and what they're really revealing and yeah. then live into that. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much again for being up with us early on a Saturday morning, your time. Uh, Elise Stevens, you are a treasure and I so appreciate you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Janine. I always enjoy talking with you. <laughs> wonderful. On behalf of Janine Hamner-Holman, thanks for paying attention. This has been the cost of not paying attention. Head on over to our website, www.janinehamner.com forward slash podcast for access to the show notes as well as additional resources. Remember, great leaders make great teams.